everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. And in this episode, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Jill Reese, who is on staff, are going to address some questions that we got after Nick's sermon on January 19th. That Sunday was Sanctity of Life Sunday, which Nick is going to explain a little more. And if you haven't listened to the sermon yet, you can find it at highpointchurch.org sermons. If you have more questions on this topic, we'd love to talk more about it. Send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Quit podcast. I'm Jill. I'm here with Nick. Um, and we're going to be talking about some questions we got from a sermon on January 19th on the topic of the sanctity of human life. And so, Nick, could you explain a little bit about what we mean by that phrase? Yeah. So the idea that life is sacred as God has made it sacred is fundamental to Christian faith. And the Sunday preceding Martin Luther King holiday here in the United States has been designated by a lot of churches as the Sanctity of Life Sunday. And the main focus of that is to continue our protest against the horrific injustice of abortion. Um, And when I say that, I mean elective abortions that are not done specifically to save the physical life of the mother where no other choice is possible. That is way more than 95% of abortions. Um, It is a racial genocide in that in in New York city, I think it was in 2016. Some of the last stats we have 60% of black babies didn't make it out of the womb. 60% more than half of, of children and abortion is targeted African Americans I think in a extremely misguided idea that we would be helping them by helping them eliminate their children so that they had fewer people to carry. So economically they'd do better, I think was the idea, but it was also mixed with some racism in the beginning Mm -hmm. too. And it really has eliminated some huge portion of black Mm -hmm. America, for example, but it's also just a fundamental injustice against human life among people of all races and genders. Mm -hmm. And, it's hard to go into other countries and say you shouldn't gender selectively kill your girl children when we just economically selectively kill whichever children we please. It, it It's a bit of a, you know, it's kind of like saying you shouldn't kill people because mm-hmm. robbery is, or you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't rob people, mm-hmm. but like murder is fine. It's like, it, it's a complete misunderstanding of the, the moral nature of things. Mm-hmm. Killings a human because they're a girl rather than a man, boy is less bad than just saying you can kill a human. Hmm. So th- we just don't have any moral, right? And, right. and um, even in relationship to secular Europe, um, abortion restrictions in France are much more restrictive than in the United States, for example. So anyway, yeah, it's very worthwhile. However, there are a lot of other issues related to people treated like they're not sacred, like they don't matter, like they don't mm-hmm. have meaning beyond what they can do for you. Mm-hmm. And so racism is another big example in America. Mm-hmm. And then beyond racism, there are other issues like economic injustices. Yeah. And any injustice is an issue of the sanctity of human life because you're treating a human being as they shouldn't be treated. So if you can identify systematic injustices, those are issues related to the sanctity of life. Mm-hmm. And so it's sometimes it's difficult to keep something that is as large and pervasive an injustice as abortion front and center as I think mm-hmm. it should be while mm-hmm. still making sure you're giving real voice to other things and then recognizing this. And this is kind of where the questions come mm-hmm. from issues related to the sanctity of life are so situated within our political dichotomies yeah. that whenever you say anything, people are going to hear things you're not saying because most people do mean that when they say something similar. Mm-hmm. And so you'll have conservatives say, hey, wait a second. Whenever you talk about economic injustice, you're really just pushing the Democratic Party's platform. You're race baiting. You're engaging in identity mm-hmm. politics. You're doing all these terrible things and you shouldn't do them. Right. And if you talk about abortion and you don't talk about racism, people that are more progressive in their leanings are saying you're falling into this same old you can't do anything about abortion, so you talk about it, but things you could do something about, like education inequalities or income inequalities, so you just don't even face. Mm-hmm. And so you're really just captured by progressive or conservative politics. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have to say, this is what I'm saying. 
and I'm not saying this and I'm not saying that mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that, but I'm <laughs> saying this. Yeah. And I don't, I don't begrudge people who say, Nick, are you saying this other thing? Because they want to know if their pastor mm-hmm. is politically captured. Right. Or whether, or even that if is I, important. I mean, I have mm-hmm. political ideas, but they want to know if Jesus is first and then my political mm-hmm. ideas, or if Jesus is just the way I argue my political ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to be careful about that. Right. So these questions may sound motivated, um, like that, but I don't begrudge them. I think they're good questions. I think people should be able to ask them. And I think the church should be a place of honesty. So yeah. if you hear these and you're like, Oh, stupid questions. Don't think that. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's, a, if the question is earnest and honest, then we should try to answer it. If yeah. it's just a smear and a slur, and we have really good reason to think that in this case, then we should treat it as a slur in a smear and you treat that differently. But I don't think that's true about these questions. I think they were honest questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So the focus, um, as Nick was saying, as you were saying, Nick, there's a, a lot of things are upstream, upstream from one another in the sanctity of human life. And they're all sort of related. And one thing leads to the next. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what leads to what. Um, yeah. But the thing we're focusing on right now is economic injustice. That's yeah, what that these point questions. Jill just made about what's upstream of mm-hmm. what. That's in the sermon. If you want yes. to hear that, then listen to the sermon. It's in the first half of the sermon. Yes. Um, so the first, we got a bunch of questions from one person, but um, summed up, it was, the question is basically, is there an actual problem at High Point Church between the rich and the poor? And if so, can you give me examples of this injustice? If not, why is it being implied that we are doing something wrong? Mm-hmm. The re- and the reason why he asked that, if you haven't heard the sermon, is I preached out of Nehemiah chapter 5. And the specific injustice there is an economic one related mm-hmm. to unfair interest rates and uh, utilizing taxes to create ruin for people so that you can steal and own their property and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I preached out of that passage just because our church is preaching through the book of Nehemiah. Right. So we came to a day where we talk about injustice in the sanctity of human life. There was a passage in Nehemiah specifically mm-hmm. about that. And so I preached on that passage. Mm-hmm. So it's important to recognize, I didn't just get up there and say, hey, you know, <laughs> You rich people are mean to the poor and you right. poor are like playing games with the rich. And this is a big problem. Mm-hmm. I I was preaching a biblical text and what the biblical text taught with the idea that we would take it in whether or not it was an accusation for us at this moment. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Your intent was for our church because of the passage we were going through uh-huh. rather than the, what you've seen specifically. Yeah. And in some ways that's the heart of expositional preaching mm-hmm. is you're trying to let the Bible set the agenda as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Now that obviously that's very imperfect because I still pick which book of the Bible we're going to preach next. Mm-hmm. I still have to summarize what I think the text is saying and saying for today. So I'm making a lot of choices that are very limited mm-hmm. based on that. But preaching expositionally through the Bible is that is attempting to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I do think that the person who asked these questions felt like the way I preached it did insinuate Mm. that there were problems between the rich and the poor at High Point or in relationship to High Point in our neighbors in the city of Madison. Yeah. Right. Do you, how do you feel about those things? Do you, what would you say to that? So the the first way I answered the person was to say, that's the first, I want to make very clear, that's not the point of my sermon. And I Mm. was not intentionally Mm -hmm. attacking people in high point and saying, I know what you're doing. Stop doing it. If I was going to do that, let me just be real straightforward. I would literally say so. Right. That's And if it was an individual person, I would have already gone and talked to them Mm -hmm. in church discipline. I would have encouraged Mm -hmm. them to do the right thing. I try to help them see that they were doing the wrong thing. I try to help bridge the gap between the disagreements and we we try to do it on non-publicly and you never hear anything from the pulpit about it. Right. So what I told this person was that Unjust economic inequality is what I would call a creeping sin, right? Mm-hmm. Us trying to get a better deal for ourselves in a way that is other than increasing our productivity in what we can provide for other people. Mm-hmm. Any way in which we try to increase the amount of money we get, mm-hmm. in which we're not providing something more to others, right, is trying to make a better game for ourselves in terms of our inequality. And we're always doing that. People are just mm-hmm. naturally trying to get a better deal for themselves. They want to make a little bit more money. They want to like, and so every year you're kind of stuck. Like, do I ask for a raise? And am I really better this year than last year? Am I 3% Mm -hmm. better this year than last year? Am I not? Mm -hmm. Am I 10%? Am I, maybe I'm 4% worse, Mm -hmm. you know? And so um, I think that 
there are certain sins you always have to be careful about. Mm-hmm. I think racism is one of those sins. I just mm-hmm. think we're biased for our in groups. And so you always have to be pushing in the other direction. Yeah. And I think economically people always think they're not paid enough and somebody else is paid more. Mm-hmm. Just think, what was the last time you were like, I don't know why people pay me as much as they do for my work. And then you complain about what lawyers are paid per hour mm-hmm. or what you have to pay to go to the doctor or how much you paid to get a coffee. And you're like, this is crazy. And yet you're like, but I'm underpaid. Dang it. And it's because we're self-interested, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think it's important to recognize that. And, yeah. and people who are wealthy it's very easy to justify yourself and say, well, it's because I'm so productive. It's because I make all these things happen. It's because I take all these risks, right? And that may be true. It may not be true. And then poor people often say, well, I'm poor just because the man is crapping on me instead of saying, okay, maybe it may be that you haven't developed good skills. Mm -hmm. It may be that you're not very productive. It may be that you can't produce $17 an hour worth of productivity. Mm -hmm. And so nobody wants to pay you that much. Or you're unreliable when you go to your job or you don't work anywhere more than three months. Like you're just not valuable. And so you don't bring value. And so people don't pay you. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy, whether you're rich or poor or whatever situation you're in to think you're being put upon and other people are getting a better deal than they deserve, which is probably partly true. And yet we're so prone to justify ourselves. And because that sin is creeping You have to constantly remind yourself of the truth and keep checking yourself. Yeah. Does that make sense? And remember that you're, we're all prone to predictable human (laughs) phenomenons, like assuming that we are justified or not seeing the issue in someone else and not ourselves. And so it's important as we listen to these types of messages and as we talk about these kinds of things to not be politically captured in those ways, but also to remember that, to check ourselves, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. Also, the the person came back at me and said, um, it feels like you're you're valuing some statements over Mm. other statements. So one example of this is Jesus says, give to anybody who asks you in one place. And there's and there there are places where Jesus makes hyperbolic statements about how we should love each other recklessly. And then in other places, either Jesus or in other places, some of the apostles Mm -hmm. said, like they regulate those things and they clarify them more. So for example, there's a place where the apostle Paul says that if a person won't work, they shouldn't eat full stop. Well, if a person who's not working and doesn't have any food asks you for food, do you give it to him? Right? Mm -hmm. That's the real question. Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. No, not if he won't work. If he can't work, then yes. Mm-hmm. Or if he chose not to work, now he's in this situation, but he's he's willing to work now, right? Then mercy says, yeah, give it to him. You don't mm-hmm. you don't crush him in the moment for a past choice, or even if you predict it, he'll make that choice again. But the but if he won't work, then he's neat. Mm-hmm. Simple. Um, and so this person was like, are you really taking these other things into account? And I think it's important to say as a church, we do have to. The 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 Bible is biased towards the poor in the sense that it is constantly reminding us we have to realize that normal human life, people with power do use their power to get a better deal over people Mm -hmm. with less power. That's the... That's the trend. That's the tendency. And so in the Bible, we have to be told over and over again to guard against that, to undo it, to seek justice, right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't literally mean the poor are always right and the rich are always wrong. That's not true. There are plenty of righteous, wealthy people in the Bible and righteous, like middle-class people in the Mm -hmm. Bible. And there are plenty of righteous poor and there are plenty of wicked poor and there are plenty of wicked rich. Mm -hmm. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Scripture says, You don't have to have any money at all to have your whole personality destroyed by the love of money. The poor Mm -hmm. are destroyed by the love of money all the time. And so are the middle class and Mm -hmm. so are the rich. Mm -hmm. Right. When, when um, David says to God, give me neither poverty nor riches so that I won't be so poor that I'll steal and dishonor my God, nor will I be Mm -hmm. so wealthy that I'll say, who is the Lord? I don't need God. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a razor thin margin, you know, like yeah. it's basically like saying, God, give me enough food for my daily bread and no more so that I'm susceptible neither to theft or pride. Mm-hmm. Well, that's meant to teach us that we're extremely susceptible to sinning in relationship to money, whether we're poor or rich. Mm-hmm. And so 
that's really important. But at the same time, it's not like the Bible says wealth is bad. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, the Bible is not anti-wealth. And to be anti-wealth can actually be extremely, extraordinarily destructive to human beings. Because the reason, almost everything that is a material good that has happened in human life has been the result of people seeking to be productive. It hasn't mm-hmm. been through government regulation for the most part. Literally millions and millions and millions of people have come off of living on a dollar a day or less. And that's because of enterprise people being productive right. in all kinds of ways. And so, and it, that's how people can be generous and that's how, right. yeah. I mean, I mean, wealth is important for flourishing. Right. Yeah. And so the Bible has a very strong doctrine of generosity, Yeah. but it has no doctrine on the limitation of wealth and no doctrine on the limitation of income. Mm-hmm. So long as that income and wealth is acquired honestly and by a just means. And it's not for your, it's not only for yourself that you see that you, you need to be productive and generous with it. Right. Yeah. Right. You have to, even if you gain those riches, Mm -hmm. you have to make sure you don't become the person who says, who's the Lord, right? I don't don't, don't need him. No, it says, and I think it's in first Timothy where Paul says to Timothy, this is how you should, we should tell the rich, don't be proud and you should share basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it says something about how God has given us everything to enjoy. Yes. So th- that's a tension, a heart issue tension <laughs> right. there. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. He affirms that it's okay to enjoy mm-hmm. life and it's okay to enjoy what you have, provided it doesn't lead to pride mm-hmm. and provided it doesn't lead to a lack of generosity. Mm-hmm. Right. That's stewardship. Mm-hmm. We're free, but we don't own any of it and right. we govern it. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's difficult. Um, okay. So you had, in your response to this person, had um, talked about some... Um, possible examples of economic injustice that you do see. Do you want to go through some of those? Yeah, I think before we go into that, I want to say that I feel like in highly advanced economies, people are not directly relating to each other as as directly as in other times. So for example, if you go back a ways and I was a wealthy farmer and I had a guy working for me, I have a direct economic relationship with him. He comes to my farm, Mm -hmm. he works, I pay him his money. I can see him come in and go out. I get a feel for his life and what it's like. I feel that my life is different from his. And there's an opportunity for empathy and sight to just be like, wait a second, I'm not trading him well, Mm -hmm. right? In the present economy that we have, because we're extremely separated from each other, it's hard to see. Mm-hmm. these things you don't see these families that say hey i'm being treated unjustly you don't see these workers oftentimes and you're not around them enough and you don't see it in context and in situ and so it's really easy to be wealthy and be mm-hmm. involved in complex injustices what a lot of people refer to as systemic injustices right mm-hmm. now i'm extremely skeptical of people just throwing around the word systemic injustices because I think that oftentimes people claim there are identifiable systemic injustices that can't be demonstrated, that are assumed mm-hmm. because other explanations they find unthinkable, mm. right? So I think that's a bad thing. Yeah. However, because things are so complicated and people act in terms of their own interests in these complicated economic ways, it also must be the case if there is injustice that many of those are going to be created and function within systems. And so you would have systemic injustice, mm-hmm. right? So I think a Christian should be wise enough to be like, people who want power are going to claim systemic injustice whenever it works for them. And you should be skeptical of that. And yet injustices in a highly systematized society are probably going to be in the system somehow. And so there will be systemic injustices. Mm-hmm. There must be. So we're going to have to be really careful about our identification and alleviation of them. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. So what are some of the things? Okay. So this person kind of asked me, well, like, what do you think if you speak about injustice, you might be, must be thinking about something. And now the, this person who asked these, this particular question is a person highly involved in foreign missions. Hmm. So this is a person who really, 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 really cares about poverty. Yeah. And I think kind of feels like your first world probing something and moving Christians' attention away from the real poverty mm. and injustice in the world, which is in sub-Saharan Africa and in like certain Islamic countries and in blah, 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 blah. And we shouldn't do that. As Christians, we should realize that poverty in America is not that bad. And we should spend our superfluous income on the truly poor globally because Christianity is not a national thing. 
right? And so we should help the truly poorest of the world and the people suffering the greatest injustices through missions, right? That is hard to argue with. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like I've seen poverty here in America and I've seen poverty in places like India and Dominican Republic and Mexico and places like that. They're not the same. There's nothing similar about them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the opportunities to get out of poverty, there's nothing similar about them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very sympathetic to that view. However, I do think, like I said in my last sermon, because there is a worse injustice over there, doesn't mean that the smaller injustice proportionally here gets a pass. Right. Right. We still yeah. say, hey, if we can identify an injustice and do something about it, let's do it. Right. So here I came up with a few ideas. Okay. So one is I think that because the United States does not have have nor enforce a clear immigration policy, it's creating all kinds of injustices. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there are some people that believe having any immigration policy is an injustice. They believe that anybody should be able to go wherever they want, both libertarians and a lot of progressives. I don't agree with that um, because I think that it will, that mass migration can create its own chaos and chaos will, will produce a kind of anarchy that will produce a kind of injustice. So there are like places in the, in the country where unmitigated integration has happened and gangs have really moved in and the rule of law really doesn't reach there now. And it creates horrible situations which are unjust Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think a bad immigration policy creates injustice. And I think no immigration policy creates injustice. Mm -hmm. And I believe a unenforced immigration policy creates injustice. For example, um, we all have compassion about people who are undocumented immigrants among us. Right. Like we have a lot that come to Mm -hmm. church here. Right. And that's great. I'm very glad. But at the same time, it is also true that they have moved into the front of the line in relationship to the millions and millions of people all over the world who are trying to come here. So Manohar talks about going to the immigration um, office in Chennai in India Mm -hmm. and how it's just packed full of people and you get treated like a criminal when you're there. And it's just so standoffish because everybody wants to go to America and everybody's lying and telling the best truth and doing whatever they can to get the legal right to go to America because they so want to go to America. And there's millions and millions and millions who are trying to do it fairly and who have a hard time sneaking across the Southern border because they live in like India or Indonesia. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when people access the country illegally, it's like somebody walking in front of you at the grocery store. You're in line. They just walk up in front of you and they just get in line and you're like, wait a second. You can't get, what are you doing? Right. Mm -hmm. Or actually it'd be better if it was at Costco, somebody (laughs) without the Costco card Mm. shops gets in front of you in line. They don't have the Costco card. They don't have the right to be in the store Mm. and they get in front of you in line. And the the fact that we don't have an enforceable functional immigration Mm -hmm. policy creates all these problems. And now we've got kids and we've got people, you know, kids are citizens, their parents aren't citizens. And all these issues come from a lack of political will. And I think it produces injustices. I'm not claiming to know the problem or the solution right. that yeah. it should be the Republican solution, the Democrat solution or a mixture. Or what? I don't, I don't claim to know that. Yeah. The fact that we have not spoken a word and stood by our own word is a huge problem. It's yeah. creating injustice, sense. I think. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the second is that if, I wrote it this way. If children from some families and okay, pay very close attention to the wording here because mm-hmm. I wrote it this way intentionally. If children from some families are significantly different in their preparation for government schooling, then schools set up in a certain way may be significantly more effective in teaching one group of students as opposed to another group of students. Right. Okay. So let, Explain that a little yeah, bit. Let, yeah. let me actually read what I wrote here be, okay. so that I don't step in it too badly. <laughs> Students from double-income, two-parent-educated families who are not Hispanic or black tend to release students into the educational system who seem to be more ready to excel in the system that we already have than students who are not from similar families. The best way to interpret this is that the students are more, quote, educational ready and executive function ready, end quote, meaning that they have good background knowledge and vocabulary and they've been taught how to sit still and to do what they're told. Schools seem to need to be set up either to be prepared to get students who are, quote, behind up to speed or to be schools where students where or, or to be schools where students were up to speed 
can surge forward. If you put one of those students in and the other kind in the other kind of school, they tend to do poorly. Minority families seem to be arguing that we have too many of the schools designed to press forward students who are already pretty well repaired, and we're not teaching to students who seem to be less academically prepared through the family systems out of which they emerge. The effects of achievement in education will have significant economic downstream implications and therefore lead to future economic inequality that is unnecessary and therefore unjust. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. okay, so I know I'm going to get called racist and a liberal from different people on this, <laughs> but I'm trying to understand this yeah. the best I can. I think what's happening is this. If you get a kid, like, let's imagine two white children, just for the sake of trying to take race out of it. And one child comes from a really overworked single mom. She's got three kids. She doesn't have time to read them all separate bedtime stories. She doesn't have extended bedtime conversations with them. She doesn't focus and make sure they do the right thing at the right time that they put their stuff away. She doesn't have time to engage in ruffle tumble play with them. She's just trying to keep food on the table, mm-hmm. shower them, get them in. Like it's hard. Okay. Mm-hmm. That kid is just not as intellectually and ethically and personally prepared and emotionally prepared for a school that expects a kid to have been raised in that kind of a household with a parent that uses adult vocabulary who expects kids to their kid to obey them the first time and there are consequences if their kid mm-hmm. doesn't obey them the first time that respects authority mm-hmm. that bubble all those things mm-hmm. right and so if you take if you set up your school you 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 have a child in mind when you set up your educational system right and so if you have the first child in mind when you set up the system, you're planning for a child that's like going to behave a little more radically, that you'll have to tell to do stuff a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't necessarily know what a bunch of these words mean. They're just not ready mm-hmm. in the same way that other kid is to search for it. And so you prepare a school for that kid. That school looks very different. And that right. classroom looks very different if you should even be using a classroom mm-hmm. than for a kid that has all those advantages going in. Now, Family number two, I don't think can say the school should eliminate the advantage of child two over my child, child one. That's the job of the school, that that school should hold that second child back and take away the advantage Mm -hmm. that his family gave him. I don't think you can do that. But if what parent one says is because the school is set up for child two and all the schools in this area are set up for child two, my kid isn't just behind my kid falls further behind and i feel like that's in in injustice that the school should be set up to educate my kind of kid as well as their kind of kid and because my kind of kid is further behind my kid should be able to catch up faster than that other kid can surge ahead because earlier learning should be easier than more advanced learning Mm. so Hopefully, my kid's behindness is that gap is going to close rather than widen. But what's happening is it's widening, right? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. So like Marcio, Sierra, and Tia, when they put together Lighthouse School, they designed their school for a certain kind of learner. Does that make sense? Yeah. And because of that, those kids move along quite quite well, mm-hmm. right? That's different than other schools who have a certain plan on that kid to coming in and say, can we get this kid into Stanford? Mm -hmm. You know, and they want to just take that kid as far as they can take them. They're just different. And so somehow we have to say that first mom has the right for an education that is prepared to treat her son like something other than a pariah. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think those families feel like IPOs the inner in like individualized educational plans mm-hmm. and treating every single one of those kids like an exception treats them like they're defective. And that's not the message they feel like their kid needs. Mm-hmm. And so even though it gets the schools more funding, so there's something broken in that system. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that the um, advocacy groups that are saying these our schools are racist. I don't think they're right. right. I actually don't think the big problem, Madison, is racism. Mm. I think that the problem is that it's really hard to educate a bunch of completely different children. Right. And we have a system we've been using for a long time. Changing systems is very difficult. Nobody wants to change. To be able to teach many different kinds of kids in one classroom is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And most teachers didn't sign up for that. They signed up for conveying a set of knowledge, not being like intermittent psychologists and like having individualized learning plans for like every kid that's really hard Mm -hmm. and so 
teachers who wanted to teach math because they thought math was interesting now mm-hmm. have to decide that their profession has little to do with like amazing math problems as to do with like mm-hmm. getting the math into the each kid. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, um, I just really feel like that's hard. There's so many yeah. things that are hard about that. And I feel like our minority families, I think are right to protest the outcomes. But I think when you protest outcomes, you gotta be really careful about thinking, you know, the solution. Yeah. And I think, and this gets back to my, um, my tendencies of what I believe about freedom and, and, and initiative and charity and people doing what they believe in. I think you should create lots of different solutions and let people associate with them as they choose. That's why I'm, yeah. I think that choice schooling is a really good thing. Yeah. As you're, as we're getting into some of these examples and as you're talking about this one, which is just very, very complicated. Um, and they all are. I, I hope this isn't too simplistic, but what I was thinking of is is remembering the real enemy and how yeah what it's because we can hear all these different ideas and solutions and different problems and get captured politically or otherwise i think it's really important to remember that the curse is just widespread and mm-hmm. it there is t- there are terrible problems right widespread <laughs> and the gospel um and the bible speak to that in a widespread way and speak yeah. to both sides. And so that's why yeah. we need a number of solutions because the gospel can speak to t- two very different things and the gospel is still the solution for both of them. Yeah. And, and what the Bible says can be the solution for both things. And so, and in most cases, both sides in the dispute have like important things to say. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not like the Democrats are all right about right. education and equality. They're not. And neither are Republicans. Right. Like the, it, it is true that, like if you have as big a disparity as we have mm-hmm. that that should bother us. I think, I don't think you should be like, well, you know, kids do different in school and may, you know, whatever. I think you have to be like, okay, we should do something about this. Right. I don't think that you should do whatever anybody says. Right. I think, right. Yeah. But like some of the problems aren't, it's very easy to say the problem is racism. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not really, I mean, I'm sure there's a part of it that is that we all other, other people naturally we're mm-hmm. all prone to that. Right. But like, Part of it is just technology is radically changing things. And if you are a professional at a pretty high level, the loot that you get for that is going up really fast. So college educated people who can do highly technical skills can make, I don't know, Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of 20 and 30 something in this church making well over a hundred thousand dollars a year because they went to good colleges. They learned how to do technical Mm -hmm. things and now they're working and making real money, right? The, the average household income in wet Madison is I think still less than $50,000, mm-hmm. right? So the difference in outcome is enormous. And once that difference in outcome increases because of tech, mainly because of technology, the disparity naturally increases as well. Those who are behind fall further behind. Those who are ahead get further ahead. And at some point that becomes too ugly mm-hmm. for people to accept. And so people say no. And then, Right. And it, 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 it demonstrates this flow of humans back and forth between the idea of freedom and the idea of equaling Yeah, that freedom tends to lead to winners and losers. And then generationally, the winners tend to win more and more and more because they get further and further ahead. And at some point people say, wait, this is wrong. And then they want to level the whole thing again, which creates more injustice and worse chaos. And that's part of this issue. And I think that from a Christian perspective, Christians say, yes, without godliness, the winners aren't generous. And when the winners aren't, Mm -hmm. because generosity has an equalizing effect. Right. It makes sure that those who have little don't have too little. And it makes sure that those who have much don't have too much, to use a biblical metaphor Mm -hmm. from the Old Testament related to manna. And only generosity, Mm -hmm. right, the free gift of the winner yeah and personal winner not the political party of (laughs) the winner or does that make sense like we've made it very distant the poor hate the rich a lot less when the rich build their school because they wanted to Mm -hmm. not because the majority voted and took their money 
and spent it on a school so that the politicians could be the one that everybody likes right they did nothing productive Mm -hmm. you know and that used to happen in america since um the creation of the welfare state philanthropic giving in america has gone down 90 percent now i'm not sure if that number is exactly right i saw that years ago when i was doing research like back in college but it uh, dramatically lessened philanthropic giving and so what that did is it put a middleman between the giver and the receiver and so the relationship yeah. of love now had to be routed through mm-hmm. the government which is stupid <laughs> it's so bad because what that allows is for the government to take from one person give to another person and then say you should thank me the government mm-hmm. right and it actually destroys love and cooperation on the community level and between the rich and the poor and between people of different groups. And, and real empathy. That's actually... And the real empathy that yeah. comes from literally right. working with each other. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's really bad for us all. Yeah. And if you eliminate generosity and you try to supply government for that, it becomes... A, it, it creates really bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so it's this is a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go into more examples or... We have another question. Yeah. Well, if, I'd say two. one more thing. One of the reasons I yeah. think choice schooling is a good opportunity here mm-hmm. is not only does it give the public schools that aren't choice schools more money for not educating children. On average, I think they still get $4,000 for every child they don't educate. So if you hear people say that choice schooling takes money away from the public school, they don't understand how the economics of it works. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is is that only about 8000 7 8000 goes to the choice school rather than the full ten or 12000 because the public school still gets that levied money. What that means is the choice schools still need philanthropic help. So another advantage of choice schools is it requires philanthropy or it can't work. And so these poor families get told, hey, the only reason we can have this basketball team is because of so-and-so who owns such and such. And those people go, you know, that guy didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to do that. He did it because he wanted it. He cares about our kids. Mm -hmm. And so choice schooling has that benefit. It creates free association between people of different incomes Mm -hmm. and it helps produce love. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Third, um, I wrote, the cost of housing is clearly related to zoning laws and taxation. In more controlled and liberal cities, they tend to be there tend to be a lot more legal roadblocks to building inexpensive housing. So there's a lot of reasons why Madison, for example, doesn't have housing that's affordable for people who are in those lower income groups. Mm-hmm. And if the reason for that is there are disincentives that we have created that price people out of the market. Mm-hmm. That's unjust, right? In tax talk, it's called regressive taxation. When you create a tax system where poor people pay the same as everybody else or pay more than everybody mm-hmm. else. So in rents, right? All, so a lot of government um, money comes from property tax, especially in Wisconsin, especially in Madison. Mm-hmm. We have very high property taxes. And Property taxes, of course, are built into rents. So those property taxes that the government is taking create a floor for rents, right? Mm -hmm. And they add a certain percentage. So for example, in my house, half of my payment for my house is tax. A full half. Mm -hmm. I just give right to the government for the value of my house. In 30 years, I will have paid the government the entire value of the value of my house just for the right to live on my own property and to live in this city, okay? Now, I make enough money where you can at least theoretically justify that, right? And I make more than double the the normal household income in Madison. Imagine what that's like for somebody who wants to get a house whose income is $45,000. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things people don't understand sometimes is that liberal policies or progressive policies price poor people out of the market. And then also because sometimes conservative um, conservative desires for a free market can do that. For example, in Madison, because Epic and other businesses um, are hiring a lot of young professionals, right? young professionals are coming in and buying. So, th- so that's, that's not quote Republicans faults, but that's what the free market is doing, mm-hmm. right? It's drawing in people. They're buying up these spaces and it, and we don't have enough housing. So you say, well, what housing do you want to build? Well, if you're a builder, you build the housing that makes you the most money, probably. Well, that's higher end housing makes you the most money. So that's what everybody's building, right? That's really bad for poor people. It's not the fault of anyone, 
But that's what the market is doing right now. And unless people decide, no, I'm going to build this other kind, Mm -hmm. then people really get left behind, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you add to that just the inflation of prices and other things, the poor get left behind. So how we do our taxation, Mm -hmm. right? The fact that we take a huge chunk of it from property taxes, prices the poor out of housing. Yeah. And it makes it, and a lot of our laws to make sure everything looks nice and everything's Mm -hmm. right, makes it hard to just build inexpensive housing because it costs so much money to put up a building. You have to Mm -hmm. fight city hall so much and nobody wants it in their backyard. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I think that there are housing injustices that tend to be produced by cities like ours unintentionally, Mm -hmm. but it still hurts those poor people, you know? Right. And so there's some people trying to work on that, but there's so, there's so many roadblocks, so much difficulty. Like if high point said, look, we're going to get behind this. Our people, and we're going to encourage our people to invest for profit in a low income housing thing. That's going to produce 2% income rather than 7% income. Mm-hmm. And they can choose to invest in that if they want. Right. Like we could, churches could do that. Mm-hmm. It's way too complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just incredibly complicated to do. Mm-hmm. And so nobody can do it. And a lot of economists talk about that as pulling up the ladder on people. So same thing starting new businesses for poorer people. It's so hard to start a business. There's so many tax laws, so many legalities, so many things that you have to deal with, and so many startup costs that are just built into legal stuff that it's just impossible to start a business for most mm-hmm. people. Um, in political science, there's a saying, Complexity is a subsidy. It's a really important. Complexity is a subsidy. Poor people, generally speaking, do not handle complexity well. The more complicated you make their life, the less successful they are. Hmm. Because of that, the more complex something is, right? You are giving free money to people who are good at complexity, which is highly educated, high IQ, highly diligent, conscientious people. Right. So anytime you produce, you create complexity, you're paying a subsidy to highly intelligent, highly educated, Mm -hmm. highly diligent people. Right. Which is usually the poor don't have all three of those. They might be highly diligent, but they might not be highly intelligent. And so they fall further behind. We we say politically, we're doing good stuff for the poor. We're not. Every time we make it more complicated, we make their life more unworkable and they can't personally handle those complexities and they fall further behind. And then we say, it's the dang Republicans. It's the dang Democrats. Mm-hmm. It's we don't understand human nature. Yeah. And we don't have the guts or willingness to deal with things as they are. The poor need housing that doesn't cost much. Right. So you can't put big tax expenses into it. Mm-hmm. You can't make regulations that make it impossible to build. And you can't like do things right. that make the market not want to do it. So, And what I'm, what I'm hearing you say for each person, like for an individual, for myself, I need to recognize that both I don't want to pay a lot of money in taxes, but also I'm naturally not going to want something in my backyard because it affects me. So we have to just be aware mm-hmm. that that's that's why this all naturally just happens. We don't want to we want we're self interested, and so yeah. I need to remember that in this situation, I can I can create complexity by being self interested. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like I, I just yeah. don't want, but I just don't want to pay a lot and I don't want it to affect me. That's why. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Because everybody pays property tax. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you pay it, but I pay it and the poor people pay it. Mm-hmm. If we lowered property taxes dramatically so that housing was less expensive, right? Well, where's the government going to get the money they mm-hmm. need to fund our schools and our, our garbage collection mm-hmm. and all that? Well, they would have to do it with a city income tax. Or they'd have to do it with a a value-added tax on all goods, which, of course, would never work because we just would buy everything from Amazon, right? And if they put an income tax on us, right, what would would a lot of the wealthy people do? Well, a lot of wealthy people would live in Cross Plains and Middleton and Monona. They would move to enclaves that didn't have that income on them, right? So then the city would have to, like, do a hostile takeover of Middleton and Monona if that's the impossible, right? It, like, creates these very difficult things Mm -hmm. because you start saying, okay, we're just going to... Create a city income tax of 4% on your income. Mm-hmm. It's the only way we can do that. And it's going to be progressively higher the more money you make. People hate that, mm-hmm. right? But what people don't want to recognize is if the poor aren't going to pay for all these services, 
then the middle class and the upper class have to pay for it. And the middle class don't want to pay for more stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's a pr- like the, the problem is, is we can't, we are, we want things we can't afford and we want somebody to pay for them. Yeah. And so the middle class creates a coalition in the middle, leaving the top 10% of the wealthy out and the bottom 40% of the, of the poor out. And they, they vote things the way they want them. And they fleece the rich and the poor is what normally happens in America mm. because of that middle class coalition. And that's what social security is. Social security favors the middle class mm. over everybody else. So do most, most of our social programs, including our educational subsidies, favor the middle class. And Morgan, Milton Friedman pointed this out like in the 70s. Nobody wants to, to buy that because it's political suicide mm-hmm. because the poor don't vote in high enough numbers and the rich don't have enough votes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if you cross that central majority, you get destroyed, which is why democracy doesn't work, right? Because there's always a, there's always a coalition of two wolves. It's like, it's like when, um, who was the prime minister of England? When, when Winston Churchill said, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for lunch. That's what it always ends up coming down to mm-hmm. without very strong rules for what the democracy can't do, mm-hmm. which is why Madison was a genius when he said all these things in America would, will not come down to voting or not come down to majorities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was genius because mm-hmm. democracy is a terrible, terrible, terrible form of government except for all the others. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you've given us examples of how you've thought through some of these things. Mm-hmm. How can we think through this for ourselves because it's hard to know who to believe and what to read and how to consider these things. So what do you recommend? Yeah. So I think one, try not to be captured by the two political sides, right? If somebody says, Hey, this is injustice. Therefore I know the solution. It's probably not true. It may be an injustice. It may not even be the injustice they say it is. So it's hard. So in some ways you got to decide who you're going to believe. Hmm. And so discerning what voice you want to listen to is important, right? Um, I think not saying I'm going to do nothing since it's complicated is unhelpful. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why pursuing a truly multi-ethnic church matters because you within a church, you can get back into that relationship of direct love with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens. People naturally hire people from their church and they naturally help people from mm-hmm. their church and they create these relationships of love within their mm-hmm. church. So I think that's one mechanism. Um, I think that most people have to solve their own problems. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can solve their problems for them. Mm-hmm. So whatever social things we do or whatever injustices we seek to under to undo, we need to realize that other people can't give another group of people success. I just don't know any, I mean, I've studied history all of my adult life and I've, I don't know of any situation ever in the history of the world where one group of people gave another group of people success. Mm-hmm. So all you can really do, I think, is a take the shackles off of people. Mm-hmm. You can liberate people. Yeah. You can't actually give them success, but you can stop hurting them. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you can aid them in some way in their rise. Mm-hmm. Right. That was kind of the philosophy of Booker T. Washington in the early, early civil rights movement, where he was like, white people can't, can't give us our inheritance in this country, mm-hmm. but they can stop oppressing us. And they can help fund some of the institutions we have to create for ourselves, or they can help us do some of the things we have to do to rise. And that was a very popular message among both African-Americans and whites in those days. And I think that it's still true. Frederick Douglass was very strong on the idea you know, that he has a famous quote, what should be done with black Americans? He said, just stop doing things about us. It's your fiddling with us that put us in this mm-hmm. position in the first place. I mean, he believed that alleviating injustice in terms of being pushed down and allowing blacks in America to have real opportunities was necessary in order for the, these things to happen. And so I, th- I think that at least we got to at least do those two steps. Are there any injustice where people are being held back and held down? Mm-hmm. And are there any ways we can come along people as they take hold of their own destiny themselves? Mm-hmm. So as a church, as high point, one of the things we've done is I have looked around as I've listened to African-American Christians and Latino leaders Christian leaders say things aren't right, right? I come along and I go, okay, 
help me see what's not right. And then I say, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Right? Because I fundamentally believe, one, I can't be, you know, there's the whole white savior thing. I can't be the, the savior. Right. right. But also, you got to let people take hold of their own destiny. Right. And maybe they need, maybe they need a little bit of help. Right. But they've got to take hold of the thing. Mm-hmm. So I say, what do you want to try? And then they tell me usually. And then I say, okay, I will do, I'll do this, this, and this. Cause I believe that'll work. Yeah. And then you're gonna have to do that, that, and that. Right. Mm-hmm. But so then I, based on my understanding of human nature, how people change and all that, then I'll support what I can. Right. And then, but still allow other people to take hold of their own destiny. I think from students in school to racial groups, to churches, to all kinds of stuff that still is the case. Right. We Christians look as the church, our destiny within our own nation, with our own families, we have to take hold of that ourselves. Nobody can give it to us. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, those, those, that's not complete. I think people are going to have to make improvisational decisions in their lives. Yeah. I, I'll, I don't know that I can do much more than give some of these principles. Right. And we could link some resources to that. In, in the show notes, mm-hmm. I can look into those and we can re- link some of those for you guys. Yeah. 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 But it, it, look, it is, com- it is a very complicated mm-hmm. thing. And so, um, I don't, I'm not insinuating. I don't, I try not to purport to be the all knowing Oz who can tell you exactly what's wrong with everybody. Right? right. My job as a preacher is to say the Bible says, and therefore God says that these are the sins we humans are mm-hmm. prone to that naturally corrupt us and that we have to be constantly vigilant about. We should assume they exist in some form in our midst Mm -hmm. and we should reflectively and honestly seek to see what they are and do what we can to stop them. Yeah. I can't do all the work. Mm -hmm. I can do that job. And that's what I was trying to do that sermon. Yeah. Great. Thank you. If you guys, as always, if you have questions, please email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. And we love to, help answer your questions. Um, You can also listen to the sermon from January 19th if you want to hear more about this. Thanks. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.